You're listening to a sermon series on Judges, Broken People, Faithful God. To learn more, visit linworthroadchurch.com. I really have enjoyed teaching through the life of Samson the last few weeks, and I trust that the Lord has been teaching you and, and touching your heart as well as we have looked at this dysfunctional life, to say the least. And, uh, and I hope that all of us will walk away with a, a greater understanding and, and perhaps even a more accurate understanding of who... Samson actually was. And, and today, as we wrap up the life of Samson, we will cover perhaps the, the most infamous or familiar story in his life, and, and that is the story of him and Delilah. And so what I want to do this morning is walk through this last chapter in the life of Samson, and then uh, I just want to pull back and kind of just do an overview and say, uh, and, and answer this question. What lessons do we learn from the life of Samson? And, uh, but before we dig in, let's open up with a word of prayer. Father, we're so thankful that uh, you've promised to be with us until the end of the age, and we're thankful that you're here this morning. We thank you that through the power of the Holy Spirit, you have, uh, your presence has come and, and, and been in this place. And so, Lord, we just ask now, uh, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear from you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Judges chapter 16. Uh, If you didn't bring a Bible, there's a Pew Bible in front of you, and Judges chapter 16 is found on page 215 in the Pew Bible. And before we jump into uh, the story this morning, let's take a minute and just review a little bit last week. And, And what we talked about last week was how Samson's character flaws, or his sin areas, how they begin to introduce some major problems into our real life tragedy. And if uh, you haven't been with us the last couple of weeks, or if you missed one of the last uh, two weeks, basically, I have been arguing that the life of Samson is in many ways like a Shakespearean tragedy. And again, just to review, basically a tragedy goes through a couple different phases. First, they, they start off with some happy times, some good times, things are going well, the future looks bright. And so that's what we covered that first week uh, in chapter 13 with his birth. But then the next phase is that a problem is introduced, and and oftentimes that problem is a direct result of of moral flaws in the main character. And so that's what we looked at last week when we talked about those sin areas that plagued Samson's life. Well, we finally have come to those last couple phases, and, and the last phase in a tragedy is that the problem worsens to the point of becoming a crisis which in the end will lead to the character's death. And, and so that's what we're going to see today as we finish up the life of Samson. But uh, before we start reading, I think it is important that we, uh, again, keep in mind those sin areas that we talked about last week. And again, if you'll remember, what we said was, is that Samson was a man who compromised in just about every way imaginable, from breaking his Nazarite vow on multiple occasions to marrying a Philistine woman. And so he was a man who compromised. As well, we saw that he was someone who was impulsive. You know, if he saw a good-looking girl, he didn't care where she was from. He, he wanted her, and he didn't uh, take the advice of his parents. He just said, go get her for me. If he got ripped off in a bet, he reacted with violence, and he goes and kills 30 random guys and steals their clothes. Uh, if, if, uh, we also saw that he was narcissistic, that he was a proud man, that, uh, you know, from t- making a bet that he thought he couldn't lose to naming a place after himself instead of God, when, when God showed up and did a miracle. And so let's keep those things in mind as we walk through this last chapter, because those three are going to rear their ugly head again and again. And, and so starting in verse 1, we read this. 
Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute, and he went into her. The, Ga- the Gazaites were told, Samson has come here, and they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. They kept quiet all night, saying, Let us wait till the light of the morning, then we will kill him. But Samson lay till midnight, and at midnight he arose, and he took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts, and he pulled them up, bar and all, and put them on his shoulders, and he carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. Okay, so the first thing to note here is I think if, if we would jump back at the end of chapter 15, uh, the last verse in chapter 15 tells us that Samson judged Israel and the days of the Philistine 20 years. And so evidently quite a bit of time has passed between chapter 15 and chapter 16. Uh, the other thing to note here is that, uh, uh, that's interesting is that uh, before in the book, in the book of Judges, when we've seen a statement about so-and-so who judged Israel for 20 years or, or whatever the time was, uh, it would also then tell us that they died and were buried in such and such a place. And yet those last two details are left off at the end of 15. And so that's intentional. That creates a kind of ominous mood for this last story because we should expect that since we're told how many years he judged, but that we weren't told how he died, that this last story is going to be a story of his death. And, and so in verse 1, we read that, that Samson one day decides to go to Gaza. Now, Gaza was one of the five uh, main Philistine cities. And, and, uh, um, and so here you have Samson being his typical narcissistic self, and he's arrogantly waltzing into the heart of enemy territory. We also see that he's continued to live a life of compromise even after all of these years. And we know that because he, he goes into enemy territory and it tells us that he seeks out and he sleeps with a prostitute. And apparently while all of that was going on, um, the, some men of this city, they, they begin to realize that Samson's there, that he's in their city. And so uh, even though the previous chapter, uh, Samson's conflict with, was, was with some men of Timnah, it would seem that based on this and based on his reputation that, that Samson's uh, reputation as a bad guy had spread to all of the Philistine territory. In other words, he had become kind of a national target, a wanted man, if you will. And so these men of Gaza, they surround the house that he's in, and it tells us that they plan to keep quiet all night so that they could attack him in the morning, which just seems like a really bad, you know, uh, strategy, but that's, that's what they thought was best. And, and so apparently they have fallen asleep uh, because we're told that Samson gets up at midnight and he rips off the city gate, and he carries it some 40 miles to a, to a hill near Hebron. And then, weirdly enough, that story ends, and we move on to Delilah. And so, uh, you're left wondering a little bit, besides that being a really cool and crazy story, why in the world did the author of Judges feel the need to include it? And, you know, it's, it's hard to know exactly, because I didn't get to ask him, but um, I'll take a couple guesses here. Uh, first off, do you notice anything missing from this story? Well, for me, the most striking thing that's missing is that the Spirit of the Lord is not mentioned in connection with this incredible feat of strength. You see, before this, when, whenever Samson did something that required uh, uh, supernatural strength, uh, it was always a direct result of the Spirit of the Lord coming upon him. And yet here, that detail is not mentioned. Now, you'll have to wrestle with why that's the case, but, but one commentator pointed out that, that perhaps the author is wanting us to contemplate whether or not Samson's strength was a, a natural talent or a natural ability, or if it was, in fact, 
the result of the Lord? In other words, was his strength a gift from God? Another thing it shows us is that Samson remained careless and driven by his lust and his weakness for women. It shows us that the Philistines were committed and intent on destroying him. Another reason perhaps this story was included because of where it took place. You see, because as we go on in this story and begin to look at uh, his time with Delilah, uh, Samson's going to return to Gaza. But the next time he comes to Gaza, it's not going to be on his own free will to satisfy a sinful urge. Rather, it's going to be because he's been captured by the Philistines. And so maybe that's why it's included. But uh, let's keep going. Verse 4. After this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. If I could sing, I, I, every time I was reading this, I just kept thinking that radio show on uh, Sunny 95 in the evenings with the lady. Anyway, I don't know if you know about that, but, uh, you know, it's some good light rock music. All right, where am I? Uh, and the lords of the Philistines came up to her, and he said to her, Seduce him, and see where his great strength lies, and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him. And we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. And so this is interesting. Here's yet again another woman in Samson's life. And yet this is the first time that we're told that he's in love. And if you remember back to last week when he uh, met his first wife, we, we get the impression that he only wanted to marry her because she was good looking, because she was right in his eyes. And, and obviously his relationship with the prostitute wasn't motivated by love. It was probably motivated by other things. And, uh, and so this is interesting. Samson is in love. And that's interesting because that maybe uh, means that perhaps he's more vulnerable than he's ever been in his whole life. Right? Because that's the way love works. It, it opens us up. It exposes us. It, 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 it provides an opportunity for us to be vulnerable and, and therefore to be hurt. And, and uh, I think it's interesting to note that, that nowhere in this story does it say that Delilah loved him. Only that he loved her. And I think as the story goes on, there's, there's really no reason to believe that she ever did. And so what's going on here is, again, we see that the Philistines, they are intent on destroying Samson. But they know that in order to be able to do that, they need to find the source, the source of his strength. And so they come to Delilah in order to bribe her. And it tells us that the lords of the Philistines came to her and offered her 1,100 pieces of silver each. And most commentators think because there were five major Philistine cities that most likely, likely that there were five lords who offered her $1,100 or pieces of silver. And so you multiply that by five and we're talking about a substantial amount of money. And so because of the money and because of the fact that she most likely didn't love him, uh, she begins to ask Samson. She says, Samson, tell me where your great strength lies and and how you might be bound and subdued. Which when you think about how she phrased that question, it seems crazy. Because it doesn't even seem like she's trying to even hide her intentions. I mean, she specifically mentions how you might be bound and subdued, which really seems unnecessary. You think she could have just been like, oh baby, you're so strong. I'm, I'm just so impressed with you. Where's that strength? Where does it come from? And she's like, no, I want to tie you up and, you know, give you to some other men. And, and you would think that would raise a red flag in Samson's mind. And so he is either really blinded by love. 
he's been made totally vulnerable, or perhaps he's just so narcissistic that he's convinced that nothing can touch him and that no one can harm him. And so one of those two is going on. But let's keep going. Verse 7. Samson said to her, If they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. Now she had men lying in ambush in the inner chamber, and she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings as if thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. Then Delilah said to Samson, Behold, you have mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If they bind me with new ropes that have not been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And the men lying in ambush were in the inner chamber, but he snapped the ropes off his arms like thread. Then Delilah said to Samson, Until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If you weave the seven locks of my head with the web and fasten it tight with the pen, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So while he slept, Delilah took the seven locks of his head and wove them into the web. And she made them tight with the pen and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep and pulled away the pen the loom, and the web. Okay, so Samson answers her question, and he's like, okay, well, if I would be bound with these seven fresh bowstrings, then I would become weak and, and be like other men. And so she does that. And we're told that some men are waiting in ambush. And at some point she yells, and she, she's like, the, Samson, the, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he just breaks the bowstrings like you and I would break toilet paper if we were tied up with it. And, and uh And so she's like, Samson, you have mocked me. You have told me lies. And he's like, okay, okay. Well, the secret of my strength is that if I am bound with new ropes, then I shall become weak. And so she again binds him with new ropes, but this time he snaps them like thread. So she tries again, and and this time he's like, well, if you you weave the seven locks of my head, which is interesting, he must have dreads or something. I'm trying to picture, either has dreads or he's just like, you know, Charlie Brown, and he's got like just three hairs sticking out. I'm not sure, but um, he's like, if you take these seven locks of my head and, and you weave them into a loom and, and tighten it down, then I'll become weak like other, man, other men. And so this is getting concerning because Samson is getting closer. He's, he's bringing up his hair. He's, he's beginning to flirt with disaster. And so she yet again yells, and he wakes up, and we're told that he just pulls his hair from the loom. And so this is crazy, right? This is crazy. Three times, Samson has been bound by Delilah. She has yelled out that the Philistines are upon you, and he has woke up and broke off whatever's had him bound. And so again, you're left with these two impressions. One, how incredibly strong is Samson? And two, how incredibly stupid is Samson? And at this point, it's hard to know which one is stronger, his physical strength or his stupidity. And so let's keep reading. Verse 15. And she said to him, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times and you have not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. And he told her all his heart and he said to her, a razor has never come upon my head for I've been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, 
then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up again, for he has told me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. She made him sleep on her knees. And she called a man and had him shave off his seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep, and he said, I will go out at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison, but the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Okay, so Delilah has finally pulled out the big guns. And she's like, Samson, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? And so this chick's good. She is taking a play right out of Samson's first wife's playbook. If you remember back to last week when we covered chapter 14, the, 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 the Timni woman said to him, you only hate me, you do not love me. And so Samson has been in this exact same situation before with a woman. And yet, as we just read, he has not learned his lesson. Samson breaks. He, he gives in. Yes, he is strong physically. But apparently, he is not strong enough to withstand a woman's displeasure. And it's interesting and even sadly ironic that it says his soul was vexed to death. And he told her all his heart. Because him telling her will actually lead to his physical death. So perhaps he should have let his soul be killed a little longer because he is now going to physically die. And and so he tells her basically, look, I've never had a haircut because I've been set apart to God as a Nazarite from birth. And from his response, we learn three things. First, we learn that, that he did in fact recognize that he was a Nazarite. Which I think is important because based on last week's behavior, you might be tempted to think, well, well, maybe he just doesn't know any better. Maybe he just keeps breaking this vow because he, he's just not clear on, on that he was supposed to be a Nazarite. But, but clearly he does. Secondly, though, it, it may appear subtle or insignificant, but, but look at what name Samson picks to describe who the vow is to. In our Bibles, it just says God with a capital G and lowercase od. But the the Hebrew word there is Elohim. And Elohim is just a generic name for a deity. And so uh, it's it's a perfectly appropriate name to to say to God. But but also other religions would call their gods Elohim. And and so it's it's perhaps telling that Samson didn't use God's unique covenantal name, which is Yahweh. And then lastly, the, the most devastating part of his confession to Delilah is that Samson wrongly believes that his hair is the source of his power. When in fact, the source of his power is God. You see, I think some of us have misunderstood this story. Perhaps uh, we haven't been helped by cartoons and TV shows and, you know, Elizabeth Taylor and all the rest. But um, here's the thing. Samson's hair, it was just a sign or a symbol of his vow to God. And, And the same way that there is nothing magical about this wedding ring on my finger. It's just a, a symbol of, of my marriage vows that I made to my wife. But at the same time, if I took off my wedding ring and I threw it on the ground or I you know, flushed it down the toilet or whatever, that would say a lot about what I thought about those vows that I made. And so, again, there's nothing magical about his hair. It was just a symbol. It was, 
a symbol of the vow. You see, I think verse 20 makes it clear that the Lord was his strength. And therefore, Samson lost his strength not because he got a haircut, but because God had left him. By telling Delilah about his hair, Samson has shown that he has no regard for God or for the vow that he was under. And therefore, God will not be mocked any longer by Samson's sin. And so he withdraws his spirit from him. And then in verse 21, we read that they gouge out his eyes and, you know, they would have scooped, they would have pulled them out and scooped them out and then cauterized them with something hot. So this is a very bad situation. And again, he's, in, he's back in Gaza, which he's been there before. We're told that he's in prison and that they have him working in a mill, grinding out flour. And I really like what one commentator said here. He wrote this. Overnight, this man is transformed from one whose life is governed by sight, whose actions are determined by what is right in his own eyes, into a blind man with eyes gouged out. Overnight, a life of coming and going as he pleases turns into a life of bondage and imprisonment. Overnight, the person who had spent his life insulting and humiliating others becomes the object of their humiliation. Overnight, a man with the highest conceivable calling, the divinely commissioned agent of deliverance for Israel, is cast down to the lowest position imaginable, grinding flour for others in prison. Samson's sun has set. And so our real life tragedy has finally moved to a place of crisis, to a place where hope is lost. And yet we read this very beautiful sentence in verse 22. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. And I think you have to ask yourself, why would the author include that statement of, of course his hair would grow back after it had been shaved? I think it's included because it shows us that we serve a God of grace, that we serve a God of mercy, a God of the the second and the third and the fourth chances, a God who keeps his promises, a God who is faithful even when you and I are not. And so let's finish the story here. Verse 23. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a sacrifice to Dagon, their God. And to rejoice, and they said, Our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God, for they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hand. The ravenger of our country has been killed, many, or the ravenger who killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, Call Samson that he may entertain us. And so they called Samson out of the prison, and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars. And Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, Let me feel the the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there. And on the roof there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. Then Samson called to the Lord and he said, O Lord God, please remember me. Please strengthen me only this once. O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. And then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he killed during his life. 
Then his brothers and all his family came down and they took him and brought him and buried him between Zorah and Eshuel in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had judged Israel 20 years. And so, wow, what a story. The, the Philistines, they are throwing a worship service to their false god, Dagon. And uh, because they believe that Dagon has helped them capture their greatest enemy. And so evidently during this party, at some point, they, they want some entertainment. They want to farther humiliate Samson. And so he comes out and he sings and dances and does whatever they want him to do. And, and you have to again remember that he's blind. And so they have this young man helping him get around. And so Samson asked the young man, help me to, to find the pillars of the house so that I can take a little rest, take a little break. And, and so Samson leans against them. And then in verse 28, we read that then Samson called to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord God, please remember me. Please strengthen me only this only this once. Oh, God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And so this strong man has finally been made weak. This proud, narcissistic man has finally shown a glimpse of humility. And yes, it's not perfect. At some level, he still wants revenge for his two eyes. But when you contrast this request with the only other time in his life when he cried out to God, it is quite a bit different. For one, he uses the name Yahweh. Another thing, he says, he says please twice. And so this baby toddler is finally starting to learn what it means to be humble. He also confesses and recognizes that God is the source of his strength. And so he prays, he, he stretches out his hands, and the Lord gives him one last use of supernatural power. And strength, and he collapses the entire Dagon temple. I just thought that was funny. I, I, <laughs> it's just, I think that is how you pronounce it. Uh, but the entire Dagon temple has been torn down. And then we're told another sad sentence, and that's this. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he killed during his life. And so Samson was, in fact, used by God. He, he did fulfill his purpose. And yet it took him dying. It, it took him becoming his weakest. It took him sacrificing his own life. And again, as I read his story, I'm just, I'm just left wondering, how much more could Samson have been used? How much more of God could he have had? How much more of the Spirit's presence and power could he have experienced? And so our real life tragedy comes to an end. It, it ends on a tragic note. This man was given an incredible high calling and mission by God. He was given extraordinary gifts to accomplish that purpose. And yet, because of sin, he has wasted his life. And so what are the takeaways from this story? What exactly are some lessons we can learn from his life? Well, I think first, the, the first lesson that we see in the life of Samson is this. There are devastating consequences to our sin. Again, last week we talked about how Samson was a man who compromised, how he was impulsive, how he was a narcissist. But we could have included others like the fact that he was a womanizer. The fact that he was ruled by his out-of-control sexual desires. He was revengeful. He was entitled. He was unteachable. And on and on it goes. The reality was, Samson was his own worst enemy. And oftentimes, you and I are as well. His life was ravaged and wrecked by sin. And yet it took him losing everything to finally wake up and acknowledge God and to ask for help. 
And you see, I think some of us have lived lives like this. We've, we've been to the school of the hard knocks, as they say. And for some of us, it took losing almost everything before we stopped and we cried out to God. We had to be broken by our sin before we could cry out and acknowledge our need for a Savior. You know, there's a guy in our church uh, here who recently opened up a clinic to help those with drug addiction. And, and so some of our pastors and some other members have been going down to the clinic to, to do some counseling to meet with some of these people. And as they get to be one-on-one with them, they, they hear a, 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 the story is almost always the same. It's, it's, you know, they were just like you and I. They were going through life. They had families. They had jobs. They had homes. And something happened. They, they broke a leg or for whatever reason they needed to be put on painkillers. And next thing you know, five years have gone by, 10 years, 30, whatever, and they've been addicted. And and, and all of them, they've, they've lost homes, they've lost families, they've lost jobs. And so they're finally at that point where they're ready to listen. They're at that point where they're open and receptive to the gospel because they have literally lost everything. And, and you see, some of you are in the midst of that right now. Maybe you haven't lost everything. Maybe you're still working and you still have your wife and your kids. But, but your life is a mess. Sin has begun to wreck you. It's wrecked your family. It's wrecked your finances. You've suffered many consequences from your sin, and yet some of you still haven't bowed your head. You still haven't acknowledged your need for God. You've been living your life as the prodigal son. You're, you're swimming around in the pigsty. And yet, just like in that story, your father is waiting at the top of the driveway with his arms open, and he's waiting for you to come back home. And so if that's you this morning, I just want to urge you to, to wake up, to come home, and to stop living a life that continues to be devastated by sin. And so that's the first lesson we see in his life. Secondly, though, and it is related, we see from the life of Samson that as long as you're breathing, it's never too late to cry out to God. Again, if we go back to that verse 22, when we read about his hair beginning to grow again, it's as if God is saying, there's still hope. There's still an opportunity to cry out in humility. There's still an opportunity to be used by God. You see, God's grace is greater than our sin. It says in the book of Lamentations that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So that's the second lesson that we see, that as long as you and I are breathing, it's never too late. Thirdly, though, we see through the life of Samson that when you and I are weak and humble, then and only then are we truly strong. Again, it took Samson his whole life before he learned this lesson. You see, he assumed that he was the source of his strength, that it would never leave him. He had compromised and violated so much, and yet he continued to be successful. He continued to be free. And yet, as we saw earlier, God will not allow you to mock him forever. He will not allow you to misuse the gifts that he's given you without consequences. And so Samson eventually and painfully came to this realization. He finally understood that truth that when you and I are weak, then we are strong. And that's a lesson that I think God has to take all of his followers through at some point. He did it with the Apostle Paul. In 2 Corinthians 12, we read that that Paul was given a thorn in the flesh A messenger of Satan was there to harass him, to to keep him from being proud, from being conceited. And Paul tells us that he pleaded three times for the Lord to take it away. And then the Lord Jesus answers him in verse 9 and says, 
my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. And so as Paul thinks about that, as he received that from the Lord, he ends by saying, when I am weak, then I am strong. You see, you and I, we have to come to a place where we understand this truth. That any gifts, any talents, any feats of strength, they are all gifts of grace. And they can be taken away as they were with Samson. And so what we need to understand and we need to acknowledge is that when we're weak, when we are humble, then we're at a place where God can use us, where his strength can be displayed. And you see, it wasn't until Samson was at his weakest that he exercised any amount of faith. You know, it's so interesting. He's in the book of Hebrews in chapter 11. And if you would, uh, you know, last week looked at his life, you would think, did this guy, did he display any amounts of faith? And yet, I believe that he did at the end of his life. And so, I actually want to turn there. Um, If you want to, turn to Hebrews chapter 11. I just want to read a few verses. Starting in verse 32, it says this. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, of Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. And again, that chapter is a, it, uh, the author is just walking through all these men and women of the past, these men and women of faith. But did you catch what, catch what verse 34 said? It said they were made strong out of weakness. You see, the point of Hebrews 11 isn't how great are these people. The point is how great is God? How wonderful, how amazing is God that he uses imperfect, sinful, selfish human beings. And we see that he only uses them when they become weak. And then he can use them because his strength is displayed. And and I think the other thing about Hebrews 11 is that we see that even the smallest amount of faith, the, the smallest amount of trust, God can use and he can honor that. You see, this idea of becoming strong through weakness, it's an upside-down thing. It even feels paradoxical, and yet that's how God designed it to be. You know, I've shared this before here, but about six or seven years ago, I was, for the first time in my life, wrestling with some depression and anxiety and, and some insomnia. And the thing about it was, was before that time, I was an extremely proud and conceited person. And again, not like I've arrived and, you know, I'm past all that, but, but a lot of it has been weeded out to some degree. But the thing is, is that was by far the weakest and the frailest I've ever been in my life. There were times where I thought I wasn't going to make it. There were times where I thought I was literally going crazy. My life felt out of control. My head and my emotions felt out of control. Yet through that brokenness, through that weakness, the Lord did a great work in my heart and in my life. And probably for the first time in my life, I realized just how dependent I am on God. You see, I went to the doctors, but they couldn't help me. I went, uh, you know, my dear wife was there. She supported me. But even, but even her and all of her support, she couldn't take it away. She couldn't fully help me. And if you've ever been there, if you've ever been in that place of weakness, that place of frailness, that, that place where you're not sure you're going to make it, it's both terrifying and beautiful all at the same time. It's terrifying because you realize that you're not ultimately in control of your life or anything else for that matter. 
In other words, you begin to realize that you're not as tough or as strong as you thought you were. And so it's terrifying. But at the same time, it can be beautiful. Because when you learn to trust God, when you learn to depend on Him and not yourself, that when you learn that no matter how many gifts, no matter how many talents you have, you can do nothing apart from Him. And somewhere in that weakness, somewhere in that place of humility, you begin to experience true strength. You'll begin to experience true faith in God. And so that's the third lesson, that when we're weak, we are truly strong. And so lastly, what's the final lesson that we see from the life of Samson? Well, all along I've been painting that the life of Samson as, a, as, as like a Shakespearean tragedy, and again, taken by itself and taken in isolation from the rest of the Bible, it kind of is. And yet we know that the life of Samson, that his death, that it is not the end of the story. It's, it's not the end of Israel's history. And it's certainly not the last word in the story of redemption. No, you see, the final lesson that we learn from the life of Samson is this. Israel needed someone greater than Samson, and so do you and I. See, I mentioned in the, the first week of the series that, uh, on the life of Samson that he was the last of the 12 judges. And it is true that he was the last judge mentioned in the book. But not too many years from now, uh, from when Samson judged Israel, in fact, some scholars think that their lives overlapped, God will answer the prayer of another barren woman. And he's going to give another son. And this son, too, will be a Nazarite from birth. And his name is Samuel. And Samuel will lead Israel as both judge and priest. And he'll establish and prepare the way for King David. As well, he'll turn Israel back to God. He'll, he'll destroy all of the false gods that are in Israel. And in many ways, Samuel was an excellent and an amazing judge, an amazing man of God. And yet even Samuel, with all of his greatness, with all of his obedience, he was still not enough. No, Israel needed someone greater. The world needed someone greater. And again, as I mentioned in that first week, about a thousand years from when Samson died, that someone would finally come. That someone would finally be born, and his name is Jesus. You see, one of the ironic things about the life of Samson is that there are quite a few similarities between him and Jesus. And, and I got these from a pastor named J.D. Greer. Uh, and here's just some comparisons. Like Samson, Jesus was born through miraculous means. Like Samson, Jesus had incredible strength. Like Samson, Jesus was betrayed by someone he loved. Like Samson, Jesus was chained up and tortured and put on public display and mocked. Like Samson, Jesus died with his arms stretched out. And through that death, when it looked like he was defeated, he actually defeated the enemy. However, though, unlike Samson, Jesus was not put in chains for his sins, but rather he was put in chains for ours. Unlike Samson, Jesus never compromised, but he, rather he fulfilled the law of God perfectly. Unlike Samson, Jesus never acted impulsively. Rather, he was controlled by his Father's will. Unlike Samson, Jesus never once acted in pride or narcissism. Rather, he humbled himself by leaving the glories of heaven, by putting on human flesh, and by dying naked on a cross. Yes, Israel certainly needed someone greater than Samson, and so do we. And the best part is, you and I, we can have him. We can know him. And he can live his life through us. You see, Jesus wants to, through the Holy Spirit, to live a repeat performance of his life through you. So that we don't have to waste our lives, so that we don't have to live lives that are devastated by sin. 
Jesus was the real and true Samson, and knowing his glorious life will enable you to live like Samson should have lived. When you see that Jesus was the true and greater Samson, that he was the strong who became weak, that he was the rich who became poor, that he was the righteous one who became sin, then you will truly know what it means to worship. You'll know what it means to repent. And instead of living a life of compromise, you'll be able to be faithful. Instead of living a life that's impulsive, you'll be able to do what what pleases God. You'll be able to be patient. You'll be able to have a life of self-control. Instead of being narcissistic and, and entitled, you'll be humble. And you'll live a life that's not all about you, but one that's about bringing Him glory. Yes, it is true. The The world needed someone greater. The world needed someone stronger than Samson. And fortunately for you and I, his name is Jesus and he has come. Let's pray. Father, (laughs) Father, we thank you that even these men that we read in the Bible, even the greatest of them, even the men like Samuel, God, that even in all of their obedience and all of their wonderfulness, Lord, they were not enough. God, we thank you that you didn't give up on us, Lord, that you... We're patient, that you're slow to anger, that your that you're love, that those mercies that we talked about, that they never cease. God, we thank you that all along you planned to send your son Jesus to save us. And so, Lord, I pray that this morning we could just see him in all his beauty, that we could worship him for who he really is. Lord, that you could teach us what it means to be, to be strong when we're weak. And so, Lord, would you instruct us, would you teach us through the life of Samson? In Jesus' name, amen.